welcome everybody back to the Snark Knights podcast, a show where we talk about comic book movies. I'm your co-host, Snark Knight Luke, and with me, as always... Semi-annual podcaster, Jahan. <laughs> yeah, we've been gone for a while. Yeah, and a while after coming back from a holiday hiatus, no less. Then taking another break when a virus broke out and stressed everything. Yeah. And then, right when our stress levels started dropping and getting back to normal, we had to watch a black man get murdered on TV. George Floyd. So, sorry to start on such a downer. We just wanted to let everybody know where we have been and why. But now we're back. And uh, on, a, on quite a good movie, I will say. It's better to come back on this than, like, Thor Dark World or something. Yeah. A lot of fun. And since this is the last of a trilogy, um, something that we will have some of, but not a lot of, we decided we are going to wrap this up with a review of the entire series. Just a brief little breakdown of our feelings and thoughts of this trilogy as a whole. Um, and lucky enough, it's this trilogy, which is so important to what is now comic book movies absolutely and uh and luke what uh what trilogy are we talking about today today we are talking about 2004's spider-man 2 oh yeah spider-man was created by steve ditko with stan lee and first appeared in amazing fantasy issue 15 in 1962 and spider-man 2 is directed by Sam Raimi, and stars Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Alfred Molina, Rosemary Harris, J.K. Simmons, Donna Murphy, and Daniel Jalees, and Bill Dunn. Plus a murderer's row of cameo appearances. Which have become standard for these movies, and I really enjoy. Yeah, but let's not undersell this murderer's row of cameos. Like, we're talking about Daniel Day Kim... Talking about Asif Manvi, talking about Hal Sparks, Joel McHale, Emily Deschanel. There's people in this movie. Yeah. I mm -hmm. Man, I completely forgot that Daniel Day Kim is in here. And as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh yeah, lab assistant. Yep. Also, Phil Lamar was uh, on the subway. I don't think, he, he didn't have a speaking line or anything, but I like Correct. saw him and I was pretty sure it was him. And I had to look it up to verify because he didn't say anything. But yeah, Phil Lamar's in here for all of you voice acting in Mad TV fans. Yep, he's in my notes as a random Phil Lamar appears. God bless him. So, uh, Luke, I, I have actually a, a little disclosure to make up front okay. before we get into the recap. Uh, this movie, as you said, it came out in 2004, and uh, I saw it in theaters at the time. I was 14, and that is uh. the... Yeah, sorry, not, not to highlight our age differences again, but uh, that, that was the one time I had ever seen this movie in its entirety until this month when I rewatched it for this episode. Ooh, this is exciting for me. Yeah, same here. Uh, it, a lot of expectations to revisit. Was this one of those movies where, even though you'd only seen it once, you held onto it like an iron trap in your head? I guess you'll have to listen to the rest of this episode to find <laughs> out. Fair enough. 
But uh, had I not seen it, I would have needed a recap. And for those of our listeners who have not seen it recently, would you do us the honor of recapping Spider-Man 2? Because you asked so smoothly, I will. We join our hero, perpetual dipshit Peter Parker, as he rides through New York on a moped. Distracted by a billboard featuring Mary Jane Watson, he almost crashes into his boss at Joe's Pizza, where Peter is working as a delivery boy. Apparently, Joe's Pizza has only one delivery guy because they have a huge order and Pete has eight minutes to make it over 40 blocks in New York for the sake of a 29 minutes or it's free guarantee. Peter realizes this is an impossible task for any normal person, so instead, he decides to make the trip via web. Spider-Man is delayed for a moment when he spots two remarkably stupid children running into a New York street chasing a ball and has to save them. Soon, Peter comes out of a broom closet with a stack of pizzas, while the woman at the desk doesn't think that's weird at all. Ugh, New Yorkers, right? Peter is late, and as a result, he loses his job. Or his one job, because Peter has to have two in order to pay his bills. America, everybody! In any case, J. Jonah Jameson continues to be an amazing character, but terrible journalist as he blackmails a picture of Spider-Man out of Peter, and then just makes up an anti-Spider-Man headline with no story to go on the front page. Peter is actually able to talk some extra money out of the old crank, but because it sucks to be Peter, it doesn't cover the money he already owes. Not sure how much Peter's life sucks yet? He rushes to class and runs into his teacher, Dr. Connors, only to learn he's even later than he thought and missed it entirely. It's not all bad. Peter makes it to his Aunt May's for dinner to discover a surprise birthday party with her, his best friend Harry Osborne, and best gal Mary Jane Watson. Harry almost immediately starts laying into Peter about his relationship with Spider-Man, only to then offer to help Peter meet Otto Octavius, a genius physicist Peter admires and is writing a paper on. Oh, and then Harry slips right back into threatening Peter. Hey, did you know that Harry hates Spider-Man? The party is over, and Aunt May says goodbye to her nephew, insisting on giving Pete some extra cash, even though she's in danger of losing the house. Mm-hmm. Before leaving, Peter takes the garbage out, only to find Mary Jane relaxing on her parents' back porch. She tries to get Pete to open up to her, and then drops the bombshell that she's seeing someone. Or maybe. She's super vague. Harry introduces Peter to Dr. Otto Octavius, who is developing tech for Oscorp, who is providing Otto with tritium, a super rare element needed for Otto's experiment. After some initial friction, Otto takes a quick shine to Peter as they discuss his invention, a machine that creates a fusion reaction for perpetual energy through a miniature sun. Sound safe! Otto and his wife Rosie sit down to talk to the boy, asking him if he has a girlfriend. He stumbles for an answer. But here, let me help. No, Peter, you patently do not have a girlfriend. Later, Peter gets ready to finally go see MJ's performance in The Importance of Being Earnest, having promised her that he would finally show up. But on the way, he is almost hit by a car in the middle of a high-speed chase, and as a result, puts on his red and blues and swings into action to save a group of civilians and stop the criminals. As a result, Peter is late, and our old friend Quentin Beck steps in, 
this time preventing our hero from stepping into the theater. He also doesn't suggest waiting for the intermission. Dick move, Quentin. Peter waits outside the theater to speak to MJ, only to freeze in place when she appears, and then sees her kiss her boyfriend, heartthrob McSquarejaw. Angered by the circumstances in his life, Peter swings off into the city to look for something to punch, only to discover he's having problems performing. Don't worry, Peter, it happens to a lot of guys. I mean, so I've heard. In the morning, Peter tries calling MJ to apologize, but gets her answering machine. And instead of saying, I was in a traffic accident, he fumbles around and just sounds like a dipshit. He then goes off to see the demonstration of Dr. Octavius's machine being turned on for the first time in front of the Oscorp board of directors. And by that, I do mean he is turning on the machine for the first time, period. And it's being done in the heart of the city rather than some off-site location away from civilians. Otto attaches four robotic arms to himself in order to help manage the reaction of his device. For some reason, they're evil and needs an inhibitor chip to keep the artificial intelligence of the arms from affecting Otto's mind. Man, nothing can possibly go wrong. Everything goes wrong! The reaction burns out of control and creates a magnetic field pulling anything metallic to it, slowly destroying the room, resulting in Rosie's death and the destruction of the inhibitor chip at the base of Otto's neck. Oh, if only someone could have foreseen this very obvious outcome. Spider-Man shows up just in time to save Harry and shut off the machine despite Otto's best efforts to stop him. A short while later, Otto is unconscious in the hospital. The mechanical arms and harness have fused to his body, so surgeons are working on removing them. Otto does not wake up, but the arms do, and what follows is horror movie gold as they work to murder the doctors and surgical staff. Otto escapes the hospital and heads to a wrecked dock warehouse where his arms convince him to continue his experiments no matter the cost. At the Daily Bugle, J. Jonah Jameson contemplates the carnage brought on by Otto Octavius' murder spree and relishes in it. Corporate media, am I right? He also hires Peter to photograph a party for his son, the astronaut. Peter and Aunt May sit down at the bank with young up-and-comer Jeff Winger in hopes of refinancing their home. Unfortunately, her finances are so bad, she doesn't even qualify for a free toaster. That isn't a joke, it just sucks to be a Parker. This tragic moment is interrupted by a bank heist perpetrated by one Dr. Octopus. Peter runs off just as Spider-Man appears to try and save the day. In the melee, the sociopathic cephalopod grabs Aunt May, providing several distractions for the webhead and results in the doc getting away. It's party time and everything sucks. Peter is constantly reaching for and missing the last item on trays going by. Harry is drunk and belligerent. And it turns out Captain John Jameson is Heartthrob McSquarejaw and he has MJ (laughs) at his side. And MJ tells Peter to pound sand when he starts to try and recite poetry to her. And, and John publicly announces his engagement to MJ. Sorry to interrupt you, but I will say that if she had literally told him to pound sand, that would have been great foreshadowing for the third movie. Ha! (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, go ahead. That's fine. So, yes, Peter tried to pick up MJ on the night she got engaged. Aim high, Peter. Bereft, Peter swings into the night, hoping to take his mind off of things, only to find his powers failing again. So he does what anybody with a body full of genetic anomalies would do and goes to see a doctor. Book smarts do not equal street smarts, and after Peter stumbles around with why he's even there, the doctor points out that Peter's not feeling like himself is probably all in his head. So Peter goes home and has a mental back and forth with his uncle. He tells Ben that responsibility is for suckers and gives up on being Spider-Man, going so far as to throw away his costume. A montage takes us through Peter's new life. Free of the great responsibility that comes with great power, things turn around for Peter. He's making it to all of his classes, doesn't run off to help every siren, and even makes it to MJ's play. In case you've lost track, Mary Jane is very engaged, so of course Peter starts acting like he and MJ can just get back to where they were. MJ again tells him to pound sand, pointing out how ridiculous Peter is because they've never had any sort of actual romantic relationship to go back to. A garbage man shows up at the Daily Bugle and makes Jameson's day having discovered Spider-Man's abandoned costume. Jameson pays him for it and also takes time to career shame him. Classy. The Bugle celebrates the disappearance of the web crawler, and the world starts laying into Peter about how big a mistake he's made. First, he witnesses a mugging he could do nothing about. Then, the guilt of everything finally gets to him, and he admits to Aunt May that he is responsible for Uncle Ben's death. May is heartbroken, and silently walks away from her nephew. That evening, Peter witnesses a building on fire and hears there is a young girl trapped on the second floor. He foolishly runs in and saves the girl, only to overhear the firefighters saying an elderly man still died up on a higher floor. Peter realizes Spider-Man could have easily saved both. Peter struggles with what he wants versus what he has to do when his landlord's daughter kindly offers him some cake, giving our hero a little kindness in his life. She also gives him a phone message saying that his Aunt May is trying to get a hold of him. It turns out she's moving out and getting an apartment. She then wraps up the charm in understanding, forgiving her nephew fully, and eventually drops a wisdom bomb about the nature of heroes and sacrifice. Shut up. I'm not crying. You're crying. This cements Peter's goal of unlocking his dormant powers. He sets to this by leaping off a building and falling dozens of feet. Start smaller, Peter. Doc Ock, in the meantime, has been building an even larger machine than before, and he only needs the last component, tritium, possessed only by Harry Osborne. The felonious physician pays the alcoholic Harry a visit, and the two make a deal. Spider-Man for the tritium. Harry tells Ock that Peter Parker would likely know where Spider-Man has run off to. MJ sits with her loving fiancé and starts to have second thoughts about the whole marrying someone she doesn't love thing. So she calls Peter to meet her at a coffee shop so she can confess her feelings to him, seemingly ready to give up everything if Peter wants her to. But Peter being Peter is about to tell her to pound sand when his spider senses kick back in, picking up on a sedan coming through the window. 
Doc Ock shows up and takes MJ hostage, telling Peter to send word to the webhead to meet him for a fight if he wants to save the girl. An enraged Peter finds himself stronger, faster, and able to see without glasses. As Jameson laments his part in getting rid of Spider-Man, leaving no one to save his future daughter-in-law, Spider-Man breaks into his office and steals the costume back, angering the media magnate. Spider-Man faces off with Dr. Octopus, and the two have a harrowing fight down the side of a clock tower and onto an elevated train. In desperation, Otto disables the brakes and bails as the train nears the end of the line, leaving Spider-Man to figure out a way to stop it and save the passengers. Peter's mask gets burned, giving him an excuse to remove it before working on stopping the train. After a few valiant efforts, Peter succeeds through a combination of webbing and sheer strength that leaves the web crawler exhausted. He passes out and nearly falls, only to be saved by the same passengers he just rescued. They carry him back into the train car, give him his mask back, and promise not to tell anyone that Spider-Man is really a super generic-looking white kid they couldn't pick out of a lineup of him and 2004-era Jake Gyllenhaal. Doc Ock returns to claim his prize, knocking out the webhead to deliver him to Harry Osborn. Harry grabs a dagger, ready to kill his father's murderer, and pulls off Spider-Man's mask. The sight of his childhood friend sends Harry into shock. Instead of just quickly explaining what happened to Norman, Peter insists on just getting the location of Otto and pieces out. Spider-Man shows up at Otto's new lab just as the Mad Mollusk turns on his new machine. The two fight as the experiment very quickly gets out of hand, only now on a much bigger scale. Peter removes his mask and reveals himself, trying to appeal to the doctor's good nature, begging for help to turn off the machine. Otto mentally fights the influence of the arms and volunteers to sacrifice himself to destroy the machine and dump it in the river where the water will cool the growing reaction. Otto valiantly destroys the foundation, declaring that he will not die a monster. He sinks into the cold depths of the water, the lights on the arms going out, signifying his death. Mary Jane has witnessed all of this, including Peter's unmasked face. They escape the collapsing warehouse, and Peter confesses that Mary Jane's life being in danger is the reason they cannot be together, even though they both love each other very much. John arrives with the police to retrieve MJ, and Spidey swings off alone. A mentally broken Harry sits in his penthouse when he is confronted by a hallucination of his father in a mirror. Norman berates his son for being weak, and in a rage, Harry throws his dagger through the mirror, discovering his father's goblin lair, full of equipment, bombs, and the Oz gas, which gave the Green Goblin his strength. The next morning, I guess? We arrive at a church for the wedding that Mary Jane is still going through. Only she's not. She sends a note to John before she runs off through the city, wearing her wedding dress, straight to Peter's apartment, where she professes that she's strong enough to make her own decisions and deal with anyone who tries to get to Peter through her. 
Peter finally gives in to taking the first real, incredibly messed up step towards a relationship. Just then, the new couple hears sirens that really could be for anything. So Peter throws on his costume and runs away, setting precedent for the rest of their relationship. All right. Uh, what about the mid credit scene? There was a mid credit scene? No, I'm just being a smartass. <laughs> I was about to say, I could have swore. Like, I almost put in a joke about there not being a post-credit or a mid-credit scene. Oh. The, the post-credit scene is Captain America shows up and then says, I know a guy. Ugh. Because they all know each other. They all know guys. Yeah. That's like the whole MCU is like dudes who know each other. It's convenient. It's true. Yeah. And we do find out Doctor Strange does exist in this universe in a, in a little throwaway line yeah it's cute yeah. um so i don't know about everybody else but i myself have been wildly anticipating Jahan, do you have a song for us that maybe encapsulates this a little more succinctly you know if we're talking about a movie with the word spider-man in the title then you also know I'm going to sing my recap of it. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, meets high expectations in sequel land. Peter struggles with real-life woes. He's trying to stay friends with some of Spidey's foes. Look out! Here comes the Spider-Man. Did Octavius turn bad? Listen, bud. His robot arms kill? There are no duds. Will the power go to his head? Will another father figure die like Uncle Ben? Hey there! There goes the Spider-Man. In the chill of night, at the scene of a crime, the cruelties of capitalism are the real villains this time. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Sam Raimi's neighborhood Spider-Man. J.J. Jameson, he's absurd, more obsessed with Spider-Man than us nerds. In the end, Doc Ock gets all blown up. Harry knows Peter Spider-Man too, yup. And we already did an episode about the next Spider-Man. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Thank you, oh, thank you. I, I just know when I listen back to this, I'm going to start clapping. That's really, that's the, the ultimate compliment of uh, my work here. Man. Yeah, I will say, though, uh, as I hinted at the end of our song there, we, and as Luke mentioned up front, we have done the other two films in this uh, franchise. And if you want to listen to those... Uh, Spider-Man 1 was episode 29, and Spider-Man 3 was episode 17. Nice. Um, we did these so, all sorts of out of order. We did, yeah. Well, you know, the hat is a, it's a cruel mistress, but yep. it's, it, while it's tough, it's also fair. Yeah. No, it, it's a, it's a challenge that we readily accept. Um, yeah. And to prepare for this episode, I also want to say up front, before we really dive into this, in addition to rewatching Spider-Man 2 for the first time in like 16 years, I played the entirety of the PS4 exclusive 2018 Spider-Man video game, simply titled Spider-Man, nice. uh, that also features Doc Ock as uh, one of the key villains. Yeah, the Spider-Man PS4 game is just crazy good. It has uh, some of the finest mechanics of any open world game I've ever played. Uh, I will I will say I did have some criticisms of it. Yeah. In that the entire story is about how, like, well, not the entire main story, but, like, in the background of everything that's happening, Norman Osborn is the mayor of New York City. 
mm-hmm. which was weird. But he's not only the mayor, but he's still running Oscorp, and Oscorp is doing all sorts of like weird private paramilitary shit, and yeah. basically usurping the job of the NYPD. There are some conflicts of interest here that are just not being addressed. And they're, like, spying on people and, like, surveilling cell phones. And, like, it's just a lot of really weird, creepy, like, corporate policing stuff going on. Got that out of my system. Now I can say it's one of the best <laughs> games I've ever played. It's so much fun. Uh, just just swinging around the city during sunset yeah. and listening to music. It's a great way to kill a couple hours. It's beautiful. It's fun. Highly recommend it. Uh, terrible politics, but great, great game. <laughs> yeah, I spent a lot of time with a fully cleared game just swinging like nothing to fight nothing to do but swing totally um and my favorite personal part is because i am who i am i love spider-man 2099 so as soon as i unlocked that costume that was my primary costume and there's a scene where peter is at mj's cooking and he needs to run out so suddenly he just comes out of the kitchen dressed as spider-man 2099 and if anybody doesn't know what spider-man 2099 looks like it is kind of scary like if you just see it suddenly he has a big spider skull on his chest and stuff so like actually jarred me because i forgot that that's the costume he was wearing yeah the i like the costumes in the game because there's a lot of variety and it does absolutely 100 percent add a lot of belly laughs to the cutscenes, depending on yes. what costume you have no black costume it's weird was that one of the downloadable content ones that you could pay for or was it not in there at all it is not in there at all wow do better sony yeah okay should we talk about this movie what movie Spider-Man 2! Okay. Uh, yeah. So it opens up with some really great Alex Ross paintings recapping the first movie, which they tried to do in Spider-Man 3, but I remember it just not sticking, but here it's really good. Yeah, it's a great idea to do a recap of the first movie in general, you know, without voiceover or anything, just images. And it's even better that they got Mm -hmm. Alex Ross, who's... I think it's fair to say probably the michael jordan of comic book art and it just it looks great you know so yeah and the movie spider-man's working as a pizza delivery guy and... yes a pizza delivery it's the first action sequence of this movie <laughs> yeah but how bad of a business are they that the order came in 21 minutes ago well also that they only have the one delivery person yeah uh, I will say, I, I hate to put on my continuity error hat on this early. Okay. But as he went from driving the pizzas to then swinging the pizzas because he had to make the delivery as Spider-Man to get there in time, he was late. But anyway, right. those pizzas would have been fucked up upon delivery if you swung them around like that. And I'm saying this as a pizza lover slash continuity hat wearer, and I am now <laughs> removing the hat. Fair enough. And absolutely correct. Those boxes didn't look good no no so yeah peter delivers the pizza to oh crap emily deschanel yeah i couldn't remember which deschanel he delivers the pizza to dr bones yes emily deschanel who is just not at all bothered that peter came out of a broom closet 
it's I think it was legitimately a commentary on New York people just being disaffected. Yeah, it was also one of several comedic scenes in this movie that got played out very long as far as such scenes tend to be shown in movies. Mm -hmm. So that scene where Peter's trying to put the brooms back in the closet that he just stumbled out of, uh, the scene where he's on the elevator with Hal Sparks, uh, scenes like that, there's, there's two or three of them in the movie, and they're all drawn out for like a minute to the point where it's just so awkward that your first round of laughter ends, and then it feels very awkward, and then you get the second round of laughter because of how long and awkward it is. And uh, good for Sam Raimi. I think when you make a successful first movie, you get a lot of leeway for the sequel. Oh, yeah. And uh, his version of leveraging that was just drawing out laugh moments. Yeah. And specifically those two scenes, I'll talk about a few more scenes later, but there's a release called Spider-Man 2.1. Oh, I missed this. That has a lot of deleted scenes. They aren't like alternate scenes they're just like slightly longer for the most part there are a couple that i'm going to talk very specifically about but the broom closet scene is actually just longer it serves no purpose at all it's just slightly longer one could argue that that is in and of itself a purpose but i i take your point (laughs) true yeah most of them when you see all of the extra stuff it's like yeah you could cut that yeah so yeah coming out of the broom closet the pizza is late so peter gets fired for that his life sucks absolutely sucks and i think when i first saw this movie i didn't understand that decision but uh, i actually now really appreciate that the film doesn't open up on a high especially with how the first movie ended on kind of a high uh minus peter Mm -hmm. not being able to be with mj but but like you said you know peter's he's down on his luck He's struggling at work, uh, at school. Uh, he's struggling personally. He just loses one job in the first 10 minutes of the movie. It barely keeps another job. And uh, even though he realizes in the previous movie and in this one that he doesn't really want to endanger MJ, he's on the verge of losing her in a way he never anticipated. Uh, he's on the verge mm-hmm. of getting evicted. He can't pay his phone bill. It's just very good, like, every man plot setup for this movie. And one thing that's also pretty unique to spider-man in the marvel stable yeah i i always joke it sucks to be spider-man it's not always true but that's just part of who he is like you said as an everyman Mm -hmm. um so yeah peter heads to aunt may's there's a surprise birthday party for him he somehow forgot it's his birthday (laughs) yeah and how great is Rosemary Harris in the scene where she's giving Peter cash? Oh, man. Yeah, that that was, like, hard to watch in a good way. Like, she goes through, I would say, three emotions. Like, first she's, you know, trying to be sweet, and then she gets super emotional about trying to be kind to him and just wanting to be allowed to be kind. Mm-hmm. And then just sucking it up and pulling it together and being strong. It is incredible. Like just that scene alone. It's like, if someone says, what is acting? Show them that scene. Yeah. She just disappears into this role so well, uh, and helps elevate these movies to another level. Yeah. Um, but for now, MJ is a little problematic in this movie. Uh, what do you mean by that? 
Yeah, specifically, Peter goes outside and sees her, and she's clearly just trying to open up her heart to Peter, trying to get him to see how much she cares about him, and then basically like, oh, by the way, I'm seeing somebody. I Mm -hmm. guess it's serious. I like him. And it turns out that he likes her enough to ask her to marry him. Mm -hmm. It's. Yeah, that was weird. I, I will say, I don't know if that's necessarily just MJ's character in this movie, because I have similar notes for Harry and Dr. Octavius um, in the sense that this movie in two hours does try to do a little too much. Um, And we can Mm -hmm. get into that more later, but I, but I hear you that that was a, I think that was a, a thing that makes more sense if you've seen the first movie and even then it's a little abrupt. Um, yeah, it's they they don't set things up. Things just kind of happen a few times in this movie. And that's one of the key examples. Yeah. It's, it's a continuing problem of whether or not MJ has agency. Like she's moving on, but she's not ready to move on. And now it's Doc Ock time as Peter meets his hero or guy who he admires. Yeah. Um, with Alfred Molina. He's Peter is just uh, inherently attracted to brilliant scientists who have a penchant for becoming horrible supervillains. I mean, if it works. Yeah. Yeah. Got two great <laughs> movies out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Alfred Molina is oh, great. A gem. Um, I'm I'm currently watching through Angie Tribeca on Hulu, and oh, yeah. he is hilarious. Yeah, the uh, medical examiner. Yes, yeah, he's great. This movie is also lucky to have him because some of the Doc Ock writing wasn't really there, and he helps push it over the edge. Absolutely. Harry introduces them because, as you mentioned in the recap, Oscorp uh, is working with Doctor Octavius to do this fusion generator thing. So Harry introduces them, and uh, Peter impresses Dr. Octavius with his abundance of knowledge. And then later, he's at Dr. Ock's house, meeting his wife and having dinner with them. And Mm -hmm. it felt like there was a scene missing. I I get it. It's implied that they have hung out for over an hour between meeting at the lab and then going to the house. And it felt like when I say there was a scene missing, I mean it in the sense that like, it feels like there's a scene missing instead of just going from the lab to his house for dinner. Yeah, I get that. It didn't really bother me. I definitely well, get it. Well, it didn't because Alfred Molina's so goddamn charming. <laughs> True. Um, in their interactions, I did enjoy the, do you have a girlfriend? And Peter stammers. It's like, come on, dude. You don't have a girlfriend, Peter. You do not. You um, explicitly do not have a girlfriend. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. you know, I I did enjoy Doc Ock explaining how him and Rosie met. And he talks about how he tried to pick her up by talking to her about the theory of relativity. And all I could think of, Ugh. did he go to school with Reed Richards? Because if you remember in Rise of the Silver Surfer, Reed Richards is talking to women about the Big Bang Theory. Both theories yeah. are actually really simple in their basic principle they aren't that impressive right and also if you're a highly intelligent genius scientist as richards and octavius are i feel like you'd get much more passionate about higher level scientific thinking than 
the theory of relativity or the Big Bang. Yeah. Yeah. I have never used science to pick up women, so who am I to speak about this? Ooh, I have to ask my brother. <laughs> then there's a uh, another action scene, because it's been too long since mm-hmm. the pizza delivery action scene, so you got to throw in a new one. Yeah. So Peter's driving to see MJ's play, mm-hmm. and he's on a moped. He gets hit by the car with the bank robbers. And my immediate thought was, well, just let the cops handle this, which is why I think actually having the cop car fly into the crowd sort of like, oh, no, Spider-Man needs to be here. I mean, it's a great visual before Spider-Man swings in, but it's like he needs to be there. This is actually a time where him putting aside what he wants to do is what needs to be done. Totally. I would also argue that maybe the cops should have hit their brakes when they started veering <laughs> instead of just going 80 miles per hour. <laughs> you know? It's it's a comic book universe. Mm-hmm. I always like, especially for the older movies like this and older comic books, and going back to the Spider-Man video game, there was actually a lot of criticism about the cops in that game. Hmm. And this is an idyllic world in the in these movies in this fiction so it's okay when the cops are actually good at their job uh another cameo i forgot about when we were listing the cameos up front but uh okay actress and model joy bryant was one of the people in the crowd i think she has the only line of someone in the crowd is that the person who says go spidey go yeah yeah oh cool i did not notice yeah, I think that that I think we got the rest of the cameos. Uh, but as we mentioned, there's so many that, that there's probably like two or three people we didn't recognize in them as well. But anyway, right. Uh, so as another as quick aside, the play that MJ is in is "The Importance of Being Earnest" by Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. I love this play. Oh, it is also. Is that a surprise or disgust? I'm, I'm a little surprised, but. Uh, I also know you're a cultured individual, so... Okay. I I wasn't sure if it was like a criticism on the play itself. Sir, sir, I have nothing but respect for your simultaneous appreciation of (laughs) Oscar Wilde and WrestleMania. Nothing but respect. Awesome. Uh, The Importance of Being Earnest is also where I found out that John and Jack are the same name. What Mm. the fuck? Yeah, that's some white people bullshit. I never I never <laughs> like that. That's just not trustworthy. So at the playhouse, we get quinted back again. Yay, Bruce Campbell. Yeah. Yeah, Sam Raimi's favorite collaborator and uh just one of just one of the all-time greats, uh, a real American treasure. Yeah. Bruce Bruce, Bruce uh, Campbell, not not Quentin Beck. <laughs> well, never know. Um for those listeners who might not remember or have not heard our episodes from the other Spider-Mans, would you mind quickly explaining uh, who Quentin Beck is and why you're referring to Bruce Campbell's theater usher as Quentin Beck? Sure. Uh, Quentin Beck in the comics is a character who also goes by the name of Mysterio. He is, or was, a movie special effects master before he decided to turn to a life of crime. So the sort of running gag is that in every movie, Bruce Campbell is Quentin Beck pretending to be a different person just for fun? 
we guess. Well, also the never made Spider-Man four by Sam Raimi. Right. Yeah. He was supposed to be a featured character in that never realized fourth film. Yeah. Very recently storyboards were revealed showing that Quentin Beck was going to be in Spider-Man four and the drawings distinctly look like Bruce Campbell. Right. And since Raimi did plan to have Harry after building up for the first two movies, be sort of the main villain of the third film, it would have opened the door perfectly for Bruce Campbell. Mm -hmm. Alas, we never got it, but at least we know that was the plan. Some minor consolation. Yeah. So after the show, Peter chickens out on talking to MJ and then catches MJ talking to her ruggedly handsome boyfriend. Some say too handsome. I'm I'm the one saying it. <laughs> he looks like cable TV version of James Marsden. Yeah, fair. Uh, I would say James Marsden crossed with Casper Van Dien. Oh, yeah. Just handsome. Mm-hmm. Um, but this leads to a, something that I liked in Peter goes up to a rooftop and his powers start failing him. And he sort of like stands on the ledge as he's trying to figure out what's going on. And they show his balance starting to be thrown off, mm-hmm. which I like because part of Peter's spider sense is his agility. Like the way he moves and bounces and doesn't have a fear of heights is all related to just his natural instincts. So without his powers, he would freak out from a height. It was just, it was subtle. I just liked it. Yeah. Yeah, I love that one of the conflicts in this movie is also a clever way to avoid the whole superhero grows more powerful and therefore becomes more boring dilemma. Hmm. Just essentially, Peter suffers from erectile dysfunction. Like I said, happens to everybody. Not that I know. Nope, nope. Not us. Everyone else, though. Everybody else. Yeah. Peter gets shook mentally, and then it starts affecting his powers, which was really cool and not really uh, a dynamic that we see in any other modern superhero movies, at least to the degree that Raimi did it here. And it was really well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to the lab. This is the first time they're turning on the machine that is creating a sun. In front of a bunch of journalists and civilians to, again, turn on a sun machine. Yes. In the middle of New York City. Quick side note. I've had these notes since around the time where we would have normally recorded if we hadn't taken a break. Most recently, there's a YouTube show called How It Should Have Ended that I love, and they just finally did Spider-Man 2, and they addressed that. Oh, okay. So just saying, this is a point to easily come to. You know, this is actually a big problem in superhero films generally, and I totally get it. Obviously, if everything worked out normally and safely, we wouldn't have the drama. We wouldn't have Uh the conflict. Uh, You know, people wouldn't get superpowers in a horrible lab experiment gone wrong, etc., etc. Yeah, turning on a sun machine in the middle of New York is just like mind-bogglingly stupid in a way that's almost insulting to how smart these characters are supposed to be. Yeah. It also is so fucking cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Agree. They build a tiny sun 
in Manhattan. That's so cool. Yeah. So Otto has his arms so that he could become Otto Octavius. I love the design. Right. And they justify it. Yeah. They're they're immune to the radiation, they're immune to magnetism, they're immune to heat, and they are linked neurally to the user. Yep. We get some good Sam Raimi body horror. Yeah, it, it does lead to some excellent body horror as it fuses to Dr. Octavius' spine. I yeah. also thought it was very fucking funny that they talk about the sun machine a few times and the potential for it exploding and being unstable. And literally until the scene that we're discussing now, you do not see or hear about these arms. It's almost <laughs> it's almost a side note. Yeah, it, it's it's a tiny part of uh, of Octavius's experiment uh, to the point where to him, this invention of the neurally linked arms, which would be in any other world, like a mind blowing invention. Uh, it, it's just like step one of him turning on this machine. Like, mm-hmm. that's how intelligent this guy is. <laughs> yeah. I also love how he moves in them. We get it more later, but a lot of times when he's just standing, two of them will brace because they're heavy. Yeah. Things like that. I don't know why they have evil artificial intelligence. It should just all be neurally controlled by him, but the, the arms do have, to a limited extent, they do have a mind of their own. I think that it was more of a let's make this sort of a horror movie decision by Rainey. Oh, yeah. Because the arms fuck with Dr. Octavius throughout the movie. Yeah. It's also funny that uh, because when I mentioned the Spider-Man video game, for those of you who didn't play it, the invention of the arms is also featured there. But it's much more practical in the sense that the arms are the end goal. That's what Octavius is focusing on and trying to invent is right. just the arms, not any, not the arms aren't a, a piece of a larger puzzle. You know, it's for uh, amputees and such to have um, a prosthetic that is neurally linked to the point where they, instead of having, you know, phantom limb sensations, they literally would feel like it is my arm or my leg or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can have a debate over which is more practical or which is cooler or whatever, <laughs> but... But I do like that it's it's sort of a different dynamic in the game and this movie because the the intention for the arms does lead to some interesting dilemmas with them. Um, and also, like, in both the movie and the game, it speaks to the different intentions of those versions of Dr. Octavius. And I think that because of those intentions, this movie version of Dr. Octavius is probably the most intelligent and therefore capable of doing great good or evil version of the character between the movie and the game. I just think they're cool. (laughs) Speaking of cool, when everything's going to hell and the room is collapsing, you can't put a sun in a room. (laughs) Just a bad idea. Uh, A a window shatters and the glass is flying through the air and we get this shot of Rosie and that's Otto's wife cowering in fear from it screaming and we get this awesome camera angle where you can't tell if we're seeing a reflection or her because we're kind of seeing them both at the same time and there's just a shard of glass going right into her eye and it's the angle and the edit of it is very Sam Raimi and I love it this and one of the subsequent scenes both powerfully highlight 
that Sam Raimi is one of the greatest horror directors of all time. And I have nothing else to add to that note. He's just he's just one of the greatest. Yeah. Speaking of that, shall we just get right to that scene? Yeah. Uh, so obviously everything goes to hell. The the reactor gets fucked. The building semi collapses. People die. And Dr. Octavius is buried in rubble. And when they recover him, he's still alive. They rush him to surgery. And uh, the surgery scene then follows where the physicians try to, they decide to, the only way to save him is to surgically remove the arms and possibly even the spinal connection. However, as we discussed, these arms have AI and are intelligent enough to act even while Dr. Octavius is under from anesthesia. And uh, I think I'm not underselling it or overselling it when I say that as the doctors begin to try removing the arms, oh yeah, the arms come to life, and uh, they uh-huh. murder bot everybody. Everybody. If this scene was rated R, it oh, would... Oh, man. It, uh, I mean, it's amazing on its own. It doesn't need to be rated R, but if it was, oh, man. As you said, this is not rated R, so a lot of it's implied... But I think that's that's kind of what I meant when I was saying like Raimi is just the the king of this shit because oh yeah using shadows oh yeah using implied violence he's so good at it that you almost don't even really realize like you're not seeing a ton of blood you're not seeing explicit yeah. graphic murder like it feels almost worse than if you were seeing those things true yeah if it were rated R I could see Sam Raimi going a little too over the top yeah yeah like ripping people in half and shit. Yeah, there's no music in this scene. It is all just people screaming of these arms smashing into things, people being thrown around, stuff breaking. Yeah. I don't remember how much I talked about it in Spider-Man 3, but Spider-Man 1 was clearly Sam Raimi making a studio movie. Mm -hmm. And then I remember very distinctly sitting in the theater and watching this scene and just thinking... They're just letting him do whatever he wants now. Totally. And the DVD chapters on this have titles. Huh, okay. Which, it's not common, and I don't even know if they do it anymore, but the chapter title is Horror Hospital. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's accurate. But in the vein of horror, I think the, the end of that scene, or I guess maybe the next scene technically we see that the arms are so intelligent that they are voices in Doc Ock's head. Oh, God, yes. The arms are smart enough and independent enough that they and Dr. Octavius are essentially holding each other hostage. Mm -hmm. So the arms need his spine to function, and he needs the arms to finish his life's work. And the arms communicate to him that if he's going to finish his life's work, he basically has to become a, a criminal and mm-hmm. um, probably losing his wife as well as the experiment failing miserably um, as well as like just, you know, essentially manslaughtering a bunch of people or murdering them. We can get, you know, that's a, that's a debate <laughs> for a, a legal comic book podcast, I think. But there's the sense of, of the arms and Dr. Ock holding each other hostage to the point that it, it actually drives him a little crazy. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of like, theorizes that his experiment was sabotaged or something happened because he refuses to believe that he made a mistake 
which is like scary and also very sad because I think it's his yeah. way of like not blaming himself for his wife's death. Yeah. So he's 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 very much a broken man uh, at this point. And and for the majority of the film, he's just an utterly broken human being. Yeah. And the arms are definitely pushing him along. Yeah. I love the scene where he got out of the hospital and he finds this spot on the dock in this broken down warehouse or something. And that's when he's sitting down. He's having this breakdown that you're talking about where he's reviewing everything. He's basically saying, no, it couldn't have been my fault. The way it's shot, the arms are sort of hovering around him and sort of watching him. And you can see yeah. them opening and closing like just subtly as he's having all of these thoughts, more so when he's changing his mind mid-sentence. Right, right. It's like the Tick's antennae. They have a life of their own. Yeah, they're almost like trickster gods. And he, he just eagerly leaps into a life of crime after that. <laughs> Yeah, he robs the shit out of a bank that Peter is also at. Luckily, uh -huh. New York is a very small town, apparently, and he's there with Aunt May as they try to get her a home loan. And then Doc Ock just just happens to rob that very bank. Yeah, yeah, and that's the first time that we actually see him doing really subtle stuff with the hands. Like one of them removes his hat, like just yeah. <laughs> casually. Yeah. That was adorable. Yeah. Why do the arms have a spear in them? I, I can't think of a function beyond what you just said. Like, it literally seems like the arms just have a blade within them. And like a prehensile tail type thing. So he robs the bank and Peter runs away. Aunt May is still in the bank. And um, when Peter returns as Spider-Man, Dr. Octavius, uh, just randomly doesn't know it's his aunt or doesn't know Peter's mm -hmm. Spider-Man, doesn't know Aunt May is Spider-Man's aunt, etc., um, he snatches her because she's, you know, just a sweet old lady and holds her hostage. And then uh, as as the fight moves outside, he goes up a building with Aunt May and threatens to drop her. And then he draws the blade out of the arm for, I think, the first time. Yes. It's the first time we see that there's a blade in them. And he's hiding it behind his back, ready to stab Spider-Man when Spider-Man comes at him. And then uh, greatest of all time, Rosemary Harris not only gets to be in an action sequence in this movie, she saves Peter's life by clubbing Doc Ock in the head with her umbrella right before he stabs Peter. Yep. Amidst all of this, we also get our, we should probably have sound effects for this every time we talk about a Marvel movie, we get our Stan Lee cameo. Stan Lee! He uh, is just down on the street where the fight's happening, and he pulls some lady back as uh, rubble falls off of a building. Yep. And I think that's basically what he did in the first movie's cameo as well. He was at the uh, Times Square concert and saves someone from being hit by rubble uh, when Goblin hey. and Spider-Man are fighting around. You are correct. I don't know why I never put that together. Yeah, just good Samaritan Stan Lee. Yeah. Quick random note just about the fight in general. Spider-Man lands a few good punches on Dr. Octopus's jaw. Mm -hmm. And that would kill him. What do you mean? Because Spider-Man has the proportionate strength of a spider, and Doc Ock is a human. Oh, yeah. It, it's just something you always have to accept with Spider-Man. 
I believe the general consensus is Spider-Man could pick up a Volkswagen bug over his head and barely strain. Hmm. Okay. So. The day is saved, and Peter heads off to the planetarium. <laughs> I mean, as cool as it is to be Spider-Man, we pointed out the dude's behind on, like, every single bill coming his way. And uh, that's apparently the only gig that the Daily Beagle has for him is a planetarium ball. Yeah. But not just any ball. It's one honoring the astronaut son of J.J. Jameson. Yes, one John Jameson, who, Mm -hmm. as previously mentioned, is ridiculously handsome. Yeah. So handsome that the heroine of this film is engaged to him. Yeah. Uh, what do you know of John Jameson? I assumed he was made up for this movie. Absolutely not. Oh, no. He is one of my favorite just wacky, goofy characters named Man-Wolf. Whatever I'm imagining right now, I'm guessing is pretty spot on for what I'm thinking of Man-Wolf. Probably. Okay. In the comics, he is an astronaut. Are werewolves on the moon or what? Oh, (laughs) he ends up being a superhero before this somehow. It's really weird. It's sort of John Carter of Marsy, where he just becomes super dense for some reason. It's weird. But in any case, on one space mission, he finds this really cool looking red rock on the moon. So he comes home and he has it turned into a necklace. The red rock then embeds itself in his neck, causing him to turn into a werewolf every full moon. Lazy just lazy (laughs) it's it's goofy and wild there's an issue where he's a werewolf riding a motorcycle by the way he's not like a sentient werewolf he is a full-on old school like monster you know he's an animal Hmm. so there's an animal wolf he's wearing this goofy green and yellow onesie but him riding a motorcycle knowing that he has no idea how to ride a motorcycle is pretty great Huh, okay. All right. So, that's not the John Jameson we get here. Unfortunately, no. That would be he's, awesome. He, <laughs> he's just handsome. Um, And we also get Harry just being a sloppy drunk. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a little weird. And also, going back to the thing I talked about where MJ, Doc Ock, and Harry all felt like you know we're missing scenes of these characters because things just happen to them and we hear about it after the fact um harry obviously struggling after his father was in his opinion murdered by spider-man um Mm -hmm. also tortured by the idea that his best friend is close to spider-man really veers into like stage acting drunk asshole (laughs) in the sense that it's very over the top he just goes from like troubled best friend to like like you said sloppy drunk he yeah. literally strikes Peter in public more than once for being friends with Spider-Man. Yeah, it's dark. It's dark. It just and it I think it would have been really affecting, but it just seems to come on so quickly that it's almost like it's jarring and not in the way that it means to be jarring. Yeah. He's uh the failure of the experiment with Doc Ock has put financial strain on him. Um, and I think that that plus seeing Peter when he's at a low point reminds him of Peter's relation to Spider-Man and he just mm-hmm. loses it. 
Uh, it's yeah. it's extremely funny that it's off of champagne though, and not like whiskey, which I feel like is the <laughs> traditional losing it alcohol. Like what yeah. kind of what kind of one percent shit is that? He's just like drunk off of a bottle of champagne, and he hits his friend. That's funny. Yeah. He's not doing like a triple shot of scotch neat. Right, right. Or I mean, like even more realistically, it'd be like him going to the bathroom to snort some lines or something. But um, yeah, <laughs> mainlining gin. Yeah, yeah, I mean, hey, we've all been there. It's okay. <laughs> oh, and Peter can be the dirt worst in this movie as he starts hitting on Mary Jane right after seeing her walking down the stairs arm in arm with her boyfriend. Yeah. Well, you know, and the poetry doesn't work. You just make an ass of yourself and hope for the best. Yeah, he starts trying to recite poetry to her i do love her reaction she says i've been reading poetry and she says i don't even know what that means also funny that his point of reference for that was like t.s Eliot. that is not romantic poetry hmm. t.s Eliot wrote about like depressed people on slave ships and like apocalyptic huh. shit like he's not a wooing someone poet so in a world where he just picked a romantic-sounding passage. If she knew T.S. Eliot, she would probably just be like, you fucking idiot. Yeah. Would not surprise me. Yeah. Uh, in a very, very comic booky moment, we get Doc Ock putting together his device, and he's just surrounded by equipment that he ordered and apparently had delivered. Uh, yeah, it's funny that he didn't just steal the equipment in the first place, like... He's he's new to this, right. you know, it's his first day as a supervillain. When you steal the money, then you use the money legitimately. Yeah, it's it's very comic booky. I love it. Mm -hmm. So Peter goes to a doctor to find out what's wrong with his powers. because They still keep cutting out on him and he's mm -hmm. just continues to be a dipshit. He starts out fine saying, I have this dream where I'm Spider-Man. Well, actually, it's a friend's dreams. Uh, what? That's, okay. He's been doing this for three years, and he's still, ugh, whatever. <laughs> so then, figuring out that it is possibly psychosomatic, Peter goes home and talks to Uncle Ben, air quotes. Yeah, I was wondering where Zack Snyder got the idea in the uh, Ultimate Edition of BVS to, to do, like, the Kevin Costner flashback thing. Huh. If you're going to steal, steal from the best. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> But it's it's Cliff Robertson again and again. He's great. He is, yeah, yeah. You can't can't sleep on Cliff. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, it's all a mental projection of Peter. It's an interesting choice. It works. It worked for me, anyways. Uh, Peter having technically a conversation with himself, but you know he's talking to the representation of why he's Spider-Man and basically just turning his back on it. Yeah, very drastically, too. It, it's a huge moment halfway through the movie as Peter decides that, you know, poking a little fun, but he's basically decides like to do self-care and more seriously decides that being the best Peter Parker he can be is more important than trying to be Peter and Spider-Man. And it starts with a little montage set to Raindrops Are Falling On My Head. Great song. Um mm -hmm the first scene of the montage is him walking down the street kind of dorkily. And it just <laughs> made me think like, Oh shit. That's why Sam Raimi did the emo Peter strutting down the street scene in Spider-Man three. 
Yup. Oof. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's it is a huge decision, but Peter literally throws away his Spider-Man outfit and just, you know, when he sees police cars, he just keeps going about his business. He's he's a better student, he's a better employee, he's a better uh nephew, he's a better friend. It seems like he's, you know, he's figuring out what he wants and what he needs and that's that's all good stuff. My criticism of it though is there's this one scene in particular where he's walking by an alley and uh sees some guy getting mugged. Mm-hmm. And he he turns away and you can see he's torn, but he doesn't interfere. And then he walks away. And that felt like a bridge too far for me in the sense that like, you know, you're not Spider-Man anymore and that's fine, but like you can yell or, you know, call the cops or something. It just, he's just a dick. Like he's a bystander and <laughs> he, he doesn't even try to help as Peter Parker would try to help. He just ignores the situation entirely. Uh, just felt yeah. like a huge dick move. About that scene though, I do want to call attention to the framing of it because it caught me off guard that this is the first time I ever noticed this. So the scene starts with Peter walking towards camera, surrounded by people. You then hear someone yelling for help. The camera sort of turns to match Peter, putting him center frame-ish so that we can see him seeing a guy getting mugged. As the camera's turning, everybody who's walking around Peter vanishes and he's suddenly alone with nobody else crossing the frame so it's it's just this great shot to emphasize what peter is dealing with in that moment it could have been about well now peter's like everybody else just not caring about this guy but no it's just framed to show that peter's alone in this moment of what should i do yeah it it's just like this great visual. Like, it's a great trick how it just pans and everybody else vanishes. Mm-hmm. That's very dramatic. Yeah. Peter turns his back on his responsibilities, and part of that involved him throwing away his Spider-Man costume in an homage to Amazing Spider-Man 50, Spider-Man No More, hmm. where he throws away his costume. Oh, okay. And then we get... J. Jonah Jameson, being fantastic, a man shows up with a bag. And first, J. Jonah's reaction is, if it's the head of an extraterrestrial, tell him he's the third guy this week. And that guy is yet another cameo. It's character actor named Brent Briscoe, who has been in everything. Rest in peace. Yeah. So, getting back to Peter, he meets Aunt May at Uncle Ben's grave. I'm curious your thoughts on this. They don't have a date of birth or death on his tombstone. I feel like that might have been done on purpose to give the movie a sort of timeless quality. Oh, okay. I didn't uh, I didn't really read into it too much, but that makes sense. I just thought they were being lazy with whatever stonemason they hired to do it for the movie. <laughs> um, actually, my, my joke aside, because... Aunt May is pretty destitute. It might have actually been a money-saving thing. Ooh, yeah. That's sad. The alphanumerics cost money, baby. Yeah. And speaking of sad, another great segue. We get Peter finally telling Aunt May what really happened 
the night Uncle Ben was shot. Asterisk does not tell her that he's Spider-Man. True. But as far as you can tell the truth without admitting that you're Spider-Man, yeah, he he gave her the full story. And his own responsibility for what happened. We highlight how great Rosemary Harris is and how great all the older actors are in the first movie and this movie. But I think shout out to Tobey Maguire because he held his own. And oh, yeah, that scene between them is so hard to watch, like for, for good is. reasons. Like it's it's well made. It's 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 hard to watch. And it really underlined how serious Peter was uh, about retiring as Spider-Man. Like he wanted mm-hmm. to move on and he wanted to get past it as much as he could like short of actually telling his aunt that he is Spider-Man, it really made it feel like, okay, he is totally serious about this. Like it really felt like that was Peter making peace with no longer being Spider-Man, which was really great. Yeah, it really hammers home so much stuff going on with Peter. And he tells her and she just pulls her hand back. She doesn't start crying. He's he's crying. He's not doing that ugly cry that he is unfortunately famous for. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's almost a little undercut because the next scene is Doc Ock doing some comic booky shit, but <laughs> yeah. That that scene is dynamite. Yeah. Doc Ock has the machine together and he needs to get the tritium from Harry Osborn. Uh he goes to Harry's and Harry hears something. He goes out on his balcony to try to see what's happening. And all of a sudden, an arm shoots up right in front of him. We get a Sam Raimi snap zoom, and we get Harry falling backwards. It's fun. Harry, while initially terrified, is about as ruthless a businessman as as his father was, even though he's not quite the scientist, uh, because Mm -hmm. he immediately makes the connection that he can use Doc Ock to fulfill his desire to avenge his father's death. So they make a bargain Doc Ock will bring him Spider-Man and then he will give Doc Ock the precious tritium. Yeah. Well, not fully ruthless because we get a great little character moment as he sends Doc Ock after Peter and then caps it off by yelling, don't hurt Peter. Mm-hmm. I, it's yeah. subtle, but I really like that he's, despite his anger, despite all these failures that are building on him, that are just pushing him to drink and hate himself, he still cares about Peter. Yeah, and and we kind of see it in the third movie. Um, you know, spoiler alert, not really, because you said it in the recap, <laughs> but he finds out that Peter is Spider-Man in this movie, and um, he's even more far gone in the third movie, and you can see it that, like, it really, what like, Peter was really his last anchor to sanity. You know, MJ yeah. serves that purpose to an extent, but the Harry we see in Spider-Man 3 is, like, a little too far gone compared to the the broken but still human Harry we see in this movie. Yeah. So at this point, it's the second-to-last step of Peter coming back to being Spider-Man because he is brave but very dumb. He runs into a building that's on fire. Now... Comic book movie, superhero movie, again, fine. But if you know anything about smoke inhalation, Peter didn't make it out of that building. Even with his spider lungs? But he doesn't have spider lungs. You don't know that. 
<laughs> like he could barely make a jump. Yeah. Um, but then it, this being a tragic lesson in never stop being a superhero, uh, <laughs> while he was able to rescue uh, an infant, another individual in the building unfortunately died. Yes. And he was unaware of it because he wasn't at his full Spider-Man mode, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think, and then that death that he failed to prevent uh, is the the penultimate step in his return as Spider-Man, is that failure to save somebody. Yes. But before we get to that ultimate, ultimate moment, yeah. we've got a little little uh, family business to wrap up here. Yeah. Um, so I like the scene of the neighbor giving him cake but it also didn't feel like it needed to be there. His landlord's daughter shows him a moment of kindness um, because... Which is nice. It's very nice. And she has, I think, correctly sensed that they're both similarly melancholic in their lives at that moment. They're both yeah. uh, they're both putting out similar vibes and they're both uh, not fans of her father, the landlord, who's <laughs> a very, very funny but very annoying individual. Yeah, he definitely seems that. Yeah. But yeah, she gives him the message that Aunt May's been trying to get a hold of him. And so he goes to see her. And she's mm-hmm. forgiven him. But yeah, she's very kind and forgiving. You know, just sort of, we all make mistakes. I get why you were afraid to tell me. But it takes a lot to accept that responsibility and then gives this fantastic speech about heroes like the thing like people will stand in line to see a hero so after the speech that you know peter decides i'm gonna be spider-man again Mm -hmm. and my note about it is the most luke note i could possibly make because i just wrote and i'll explain this maybe don't Kid Nova yourself, Peter. Mm. Kid Nova is a Marvel character who now goes by Nova. His real name is Richard Ryder. There was a point where he lost his Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Okay. Tell me this character's name is Dick Ryder? (laughs) Yes. Okay, Uh, no no further notes. Continue. You're awful. Anyways, his powers stop working on him, and a character named Night Thrasher ponders that it might be psychosomatic so to test this theory he just throws richard Ryder off a roof sure enough his powers kick in and he flies off and he's safe so in this movie peter to try to test his powers to get them back he jumps off a roof so it's the most luke reference i could make thank you yeah and him him uh, jumping off the building to, to get his powers back it's not the only Stella got her groove back moment in Peter's return to being Spider-Man. Yeah, after a brief stop into Casa del Jameson and Watson, Mary Jane calls Peter and they meet at a cafe so that she can, I don't want to say throw away everything because again, she's making a decision and that's fine. But she's just planning on just giving up the path she was going down if Peter will just admit that he still loves her. Yeah. Which, uh, it's a very weird dynamic. Like 
it's it's more complicated and messy in both good and bad ways than most of the yes. like romantic tensions we get in these movies. It's a little like unsettling in a way to see how like morally compromised two of our favorite characters are. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's human, but it's also like kind of annoying. I, it, it was tough to to really process it um, yeah. on rewatch. It, it would be better if there wasn't this innocent third guy there. Um, <laughs> part of me almost called him a Baxter, but he's so good looking and so accomplished. He is not a Baxter. A Baxter for everybody is the term for the third man in a movie that isn't necessarily a bad guy. He's just not the right guy for the woman. So she will eventually leave him. You may have heard us talk about this very dynamic when discussing 2000s X-Men. The third man, the Baxter, being Scott Summers between Jean Grey (laughs) and Wolverine. Uh, It's funny to think of Scott Summers, a guy who could shoot kinetic beams out of his face as a Baxter. You were so close to saying fucking lasers right there, weren't you? I was so close to saying lasers. I heard the luh come out. (laughs) You got me. I'm bad at this. Your nerd card revoked. Sorry, buddy. Oh, Oh, man. Um, Yeah, so they have this conversation, and then luckily Peter's powers have mostly returned because he gets a spidey sense right as MJ leans in for a kiss, which is questionable but you know at this point you're distracted (laughs) by the spidey sense so this the sense tingles and then peter realizes that like a car is just coming right at them flung at the cafe and he barely reacts in time to save mj and uh then you realize this happens because it's doc ock he threw the car through the window um Mm -hmm. he's the one who interrupted peter and mj's cafe date with the intention of kidnapping peter who he thinks knows spider-man as spider-man's photographer it's you know what's it's what what harry told him earlier mm-hmm. and i have one pretty big issue with that scene it's really that, i wonder what it is you know i'm sure you had the same thought but if octavius threw a car through the cafe window at them and peter mm-hmm. even with his spidey sense barely manages to save himself and mj what if he actually was a normal ass dude who just photographed spider-man everybody's dead Dr. Ock would have murdered the one person he thinks could have found Spider-Man for him. Yeah. When they turn back around, Doc Ock is nowhere to be seen. Well, the the funny thing is that, that when they do show him, it's not like an immediate reveal. It's almost like a tease. Like, you see one of the, the limbs uh, stomp down on the street, and it's like, we fucking know who this is. <laughs> like a double reveal when the audience already knows yeah i don't know yeah but it does lead to a great fight scene a great great fight scene just top to bottom yeah move over avengers (laughs) yeah so yeah uh doc ock grabs mary jane and gives the ultimatum like tell spider-man to meet me at this clock tower classic yeah and he goes and gets his costume back and pisses off Chaitro and Jameson again, who was right at the point of forgiving Spider-Man. He made a shrine to Spider-Man in his <laughs> office. It's actually kind of sweet. Yeah, it's such a great character moment because he's so down on himself for scaring off Spider-Man and then just immediately, oh, you bastard. Yeah, oh, that was funny. But yeah, so, so it starts on the clock tower 
And there's lots of great moments of one of them almost falling and coming back up and Doc Ock throwing things at Peter and him throwing them back mm-hmm. down the tower through buildings and across over onto this elevated train and all around the train. Just say subway. Oh, but it's above ground. That's part of the subway system, baby. <laughs> Fair enough. It's a top-notch comic book movie fight. Phenomenal mix of practical and CGI effects. Like, a really good balance of it. Yes. The pacing is great. There's there's a mix of high-stakes action with the train fighting and lower-stakes action of Peter, like, taking a quick second to save a pedestrian or something. And uh, it feature, heavily features the New York subway system, it's just one of the country's most impressive public transit systems. It's a staple of anything filmed in New York. And uh, it's just, uh, it really highlights the, how underutilized subways are in comic book movie fight scenes. Which is odd when most of them take place in New York. Yeah, you'd think that they'd have figured it out. Fighting on a train is just cool as hell. <laughs> Agreed. So the fight ends with Peter having to stop a train before it reaches the end of the line. And in this case, the end of the line is just on an elevated track. Very literal. It's also the most villainous thing, I think arguably the most villainous thing that Doc Ock does, other than the murdering of an entire surgery team. Or I would say threatening to peel the flesh off of Mary Jane. Uh, Threat, very evil threat, but actions are more evil than threats. Fair. He rips the brakes out of the subway and basically dares Spider-Man to save them all. And, you know, maybe he he knows Spider-Man can do it. Maybe he doesn't. But, like, essentially putting hundreds of people in a position of dying like that, probably the most evil thing he did in this movie. Eh, true. Yeah, if that if Peter didn't stop that train, that's a whole lot of murder. Is that murder? Oh, yeah. Does that qualify? That seems like murder because that was intentional. That's... Yeah, big old bag of murder right there. Yeah, there's no other outcome that could have happened there. Mm -hmm. Um, Peter saves them by just basically using his body and his webbing as a giant rubber band to stop the train. Yeah, he has to trial and error a couple times before he does that, which is very funny Uh because it's a very tense and scary situation. But like the conductor is like making fun of him for one of those (laughs) methods not working. That was good. It's fun. And when Doc Ock pulls out the brakes, uh, sparks shoot off of it and burn part of Spider-Man's mask, which gives Peter a reason to actually take it off. Right. I was okay with that. Justified, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was all done basically to have the moment of, we're New Yorkers, we're in this together type moment, like they did in the first movie, which is really funny because Sam Raimi is not a New Yorker. He's from Detroit or around They're, Detroit. Him and Campbell are Michigan boys. Yeah. But yeah, it is it is a great parallel scene to the New Yorker solidarity from the first movie. I think it works a lot better here, actually, because in the first one, he and Green Goblin are fighting on the bridge uh, after uh-huh. he saves Mary Jane and the, the group of kids. And uh, New Yorkers start throwing shit at Green Goblin and yelling like, yeah, hey, man, we're this is New York. We don't take kindly to blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it just felt a little like goofy. But in this movie, it's like very touching in a way, like... The, the, yeah. the emotion and the gravity of the subway riders standing over him on this yeah. this train car hanging on the precipice, all stunned silence as they see that Spider-Man, who just saved their lives, is like just literally a, a teenage kid. Yeah. And uh, it's just, I, I feel like it was one of the most effective emotional scenes in the entire movie. It just, 
I don't really tear up during movies, but my brain did go through the motions of tearing up mm. when the people who he saved see him get worried as he realizes like his face is, is in the open. The kids who hand him his mask assure him like we won't tell anybody. Like that was really sweet. Yes. Very effective. There was sort of this ethereal quality. Like mm-hmm. everybody was talking sort of like in a David Mamet movie where mm-hmm. this isn't how people normally talk, but it works. Right. Yeah. Like it, it's being done to make you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then ultimately Doc Ock realizing that he didn't kill Spider-Man or this train full of people comes back to snatch Spidey. Um, and that's where the, the, Hey, this is New York solidarity thing kicks in because the, people in the car that spider-man's on all seeing a terrible monster man with robot arms stand in front of spider-man to protect him and then it gets to the point where spider-man just gives himself up to save them all again uh it's just it's a really great little scene that's very like calm like calmly paced not not a calm scene it's a very tense scene but it's a very like deliberately paced interlude in the fight yes and it's 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 just like a very good also like very unconventional way of breaking up an action sequence. Yeah. It wow, sorry. Lost my train of thought right in the middle of that. Maybe Doc Ock ripped the brakes out of your train of thought. <laughs> I hate you. Um no, sorry, you you summed it up way too succinctly. Just to hammer that point home, I, I really like the pacing of the third act, and I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves yet, but Oh no, it's fine. We we get two Spider Man versus Doc Ock fights. And there's mm-hmm. maybe like a five, 10 minute gap between those fights of Doc Ock doing what he did to the subway and Peter having to save the car. And then uh, yeah. he, as we said, he grabs Spider-Man and takes him to Harry so he can trade him for the tritium. And um, Harry then grabs a knife to kill Spider-Man. But first he unmasks him. And then when he realizes it's Peter, um, they have a brief moment of Harry being stunned and then Peter telling him like what's going on and what he what he needs to do to stop Doc Ock, um, and in that like ten minutes of the subway and the Harry Peter moment is mm-hmm. like the one interlude in the third act between those two huge fights, which was a very interesting decision from Sam Raimi. Yeah, you know you get like two huge fights in a forty minute space that has a little breathing room, and then after that you just have like the second fight and then the movie's over. Yeah, and that breathing room is really needed. It's it's so good. Like both of those scenes are amazing. Yeah. It it's good setup. It's good carry through. What it does to Harry is great. Uh quick side note, the dagger that Harry Osborne has, mm-hmm. I have that same dagger. Like because it was in that movie or you just have an elaborate ornate dagger? I just happened to have it. I bought it in 1998. Wow. I don't remember why I bought it. I think I just thought it looked neat. It does look pretty cool. Yeah. The only reason I know what year I bought it was... Okay. Pre-9-11 world, I was in Boston for work. And I remember at some point on that trip going to see Blade. And so the reason I said pre-9-11 world, I flew back with it, not in my carry-on, but I didn't even get a question. I didn't even think. It was just, I'm checking this bag. I can have a big dagger in it. Hmm. What a world we used to live in. Yeah. 
speaking of weird world lazy segue as good as the scene was in a very brief moment i feel like the part where harry finds out that peter's spider-man went by a little too quickly yes without a proper emotional payoff and it does work in context because peter makes it really clear like doc ock is trying to do the experiment again and the stakes are really high and you need Mm -hmm. to tell me where he is right now and we can figure this out later so it does work but i think it's i think it was done that way also because uh sam raimi was setting up the harry peter conflict across the trilogy absolutely and he sprinkled bits of it uh, far more in this film than the first film but he sprinkled bits of it throughout the three movies and I think it it does unfortunately suffer a bit if you're watching this movie as a standalone, but taking a bigger picture look, um, it makes sense to not make this particular scene a bigger focus in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great arc. It's very clear that Sam Raimi had a vision for multiple movies. Absolutely, yeah. And I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Um, So Peter is off to stop... Doc Ock, like you said, it's another fight scene. It's not as long. It's not as dramatic. It's still great. The experiment immediately gets out of control, which is funny to me. It's like, oh, great. You screwed up again. You're just very bad at this one experiment. Stop. (laughs) Yeah. And Peter takes off his mask to try to speak to the man he started to bond with gives him the great with great power comes great responsibility speech and then also reflects his own words from earlier in the film back at him yep i don't think we said it yet but so when they're uh, early in their relationship dr octavius tells peter something about like uh intelligence is not a privilege it's a gift and you have to use that gift for the good of mankind yes. and as doc ock uses one of his arms to strangle peter Peter uh, returns that wisdom to him in a way that breaks through all of the damage done to him emotionally and from the AI of the arms. And mm-hmm. uh, Doc Ock decides, I've fucked up and I'm going to sacrifice myself to stop the sun from happening in Manhattan again. Yeah. And then leaves Peter to save MJ because just like the first time with this fucking experiment, the building starts collapsing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Doc Ock dumps it into the is that sorry i'm gonna show my new york exit the hudson ignorance is that the hudson uh i every body of water in new york city is the hudson okay make it and yes i'm from new jersey so i could give a fuck what they think of me for (laughs) saying that so yeah doc ock finally pulls himself together enough to control the arms as opposed to them controlling him and dumps the machine into the hudson and dies yeah i would prefer he didn't die it also highlights that this is a very standalone dr ock thing and yeah the real conflict is going to be with harry yeah which i have more thoughts on we'll get into later but <laughs> okay. uh, yeah a little bit of a little bit of an underservice to alfred molina's arc here yeah but unlike the previous movie um if you go back and listen to our episode on that i mentioned that with Peter not revealing that Harry Osborn was the Green Goblin. There's definitely an FBI file that is wide open, just unsolved. Like, the, as far as the world knows, 
this maniac showed up for about a month and then just vanished off the face of the earth. Yeah. At least in this case, Mary Jane for sure told the cops the whole story as far as she knew, obviously leaving out Peter Spider-Man. Yeah, I, I do fondly recall how upset you were with the, the lack of justice uh, in the first movie. <laughs> I wouldn't say upset. I thought it was funny. There's no investigation. He's just, as far as everyone knows, gone. And also Norman Osborn died of horrible stab wounds uh, unrelated <laughs> to anything else. Yeah. Oh, speaking of Norman Osborn uh, yeah. and speaking of cameos, Willem Dafoe back in town. Yeah. Even better than a Stanley cameo. Rest in peace. Uh, he shows yeah. up to verbally berate his son in a hallucination, which is great, mm-hmm. uh, and then screams, "Avenge me!" And then uh, inadvertently, through Harry throwing a, a whiskey tumbler at the mirror, he sees his dad in, uh, reveals a secret Green Goblin lair, which is the most comic book shit that has happened in this film. <laughs> And uh, yeah. also, thank you, Willem Dafoe, for agreeing to do this cameo for whatever reason you did it. Yeah. And moving through this scene, as Harry starts hearing his father's goblin laugh, if you will, like echo around him, they are doing some crazy Dutch angles, and I love it. I think it's supposed to be like Harry's final descent into madness. Oh, absolutely. Was, was the intention there. We kind of got into this already, but I think that that Raimi does deserve a lot of credit for setting up Harry to be Spider-Man's ultimate foe in the trilogy, especially because we now know he was planning to do more movies. Right. But this, this was the conflict he wanted to ground the first arc in, in the trilogy, um, which ultimately became all we got, unfortunately. But if you listen to our Spider-Man three episode, you know, the final results of the Harry Peter conflict, it's a bit mixed. Yeah. But the stage setting was so well done. And the descent into madness, which gets really hammered home with the Dutch angles and him finding his dad's lair at the end. There was one other scene that really stood out to me as like Harry's Harry's losing it. And it's when uh, Spider-Man saves him at the failed fusion test where everything goes wrong the first time. Uh, and mm-hmm. Harry glares at him and, and says, like, this doesn't change anything or whatever. Yeah, that was fine. Whatever. It's like standard comic book tension. Then after the rescue, when they're outside, the police are there and everything. Harry's kind of like talking to himself and uh, I guess he, you know, one of his aides is there with him, but he's basically talking to himself. And he said, he says something like Spider-Man humiliated me by touching me. Yeah. And that was like really weird. And it just hits home like, Oh, this guy's like extremely traumatized. (laughs) Like the first movie, the end of the first movie, his, his sanity was starting to get undermined and it just like amplifies throughout this movie to the point where it actually would make less sense for Harry not to go full goblin in the third movie. He is an utterly broken and like messed up individual over the course of the first two movies. Yeah, that humiliated me by touching me line. People don't talk like that. Yeah, he was off the deep end at that point. And when he finds out Peter is Spider-Man, that just breaks the shit out of his brain. Like whatever was left to break is broken in that moment. Yeah, and understandably so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So was Mary Jane's wedding the next day? Uh, like, it, it it feels like it. Yeah. And then they do a uh, The Graduate, but without the actual ending of The Graduate. <laughs> oh, it's the opposite of the ending of The Graduate. Cause the ending of The Graduate, you see the look of doom on their face. Yeah, yeah, that's true. This is less uh, less devastating, but... 
It also gives us possibly the funniest J.J. Jameson scene of the entire film as he and his I wife have realize... that as a note, too. <laughs> yeah, he and his wife realize, like, oh, shit, our son just got ditched at the altar, and they're both simultaneously going through that, but then his wife, obviously <laughs> emotionally distraught for her son, and J.J. tells his wife, call the caterer, tell them not to open the caviar. <laughs> Always the tightwad in the most glorious of ways. Yeah the whole thing of like she and Peter are sort of meant to be together hung over this relationship too much. Yeah. And it explains why they act the way they do, but the way they act is not like really normal, but there's really no alternatives. Like you want them to be together. So it just sort of goes by the wayside. Yeah. I thought it was a really weird note to end on because Peter leaves like right away because he hears sirens and we don't know what those sirens even mean. And Mary Jane definitely looks like she's taking a breath to go, oh boy, this is going to be some work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Listen to our Spider-Man 3 episode for more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that more or less wraps it up. Do you have any final thoughts before we start doing more breakdown stuff? Uh, nothing in particular. You know, it was it was a treat to watch this movie after so long. And it makes mm-hmm. me miss superhero movies of uh, <laughs> of a more thoughtful, creative process than what we have now, even mm-hmm. though a lot of the stuff now is fun and enjoyable and occasionally really yes. good. And, and they have moments. They have moments, for sure. There's a lot of movies that I love that came out in the last decade, but like this aged so fucking well. Like this could this could have come out like last year or something Absolutely. and it would have it been like just as good. The, the CGI is really good. The acting's great. The setups for the next movie work well enough that, you know, it doesn't feel like you're missing out on a standalone movie. It's a, it's a really good movie. Just uh, had a lot of fun rewatching it and kind of connecting the dots to what I could remember and uh, what surprised me upon seeing it again, which was a lot. Like, there was a lot of stuff I'd forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, it was fun to go through it again, sort of like the first time. Oh, cool. Um, I can't imagine how they could have done this but I wish they would have included one scene or a couple scenes. I would just like to have seen. So given Mary Jane's background in this movie universe, we know she's kind of had a shitty upbringing. Yeah. So I would love to see her getting to know the Jamesons. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Particularly because of the scene in the first Spider-Man movie where the Green Goblin, like, blows open the wall to J. Jonah Jameson's office and threatens Mm. him. Who's the person who sends you the pictures of Spider-Man? And Jameson says, I don't know. They come in anonymously. Right, his his noble moment of the first movie. Yeah. Like, it, it shows that, you know, behind this bluster and whatnot, he does have integrity. It's a fantastic moment. It's one line, but that is fantastic. I can see him liking mary jane a lot one i would just i just want more scenes of jk simmons as jj <laughs> jameson um, yeah. and and two kind of like what we talked about where like her character just felt like we were missing scenes you know like mm-hmm. oh wait she's dating a guy oh wait they're like about to get engaged like it all just happened so quickly without any why are these things happening the way they are what is leading the characters to to act the way they're acting that goes against what we expect or know about them? Yeah, 
So yeah, I just, I don't know like what would have been lost in doing those things that they decided not to do them, but yeah, yeah, yeah it's fine. Yeah. But I, I, I totally agree. That would have been great. Yeah. So in regards to scenes that were cut from this movie, mm-hmm. uh, I mentioned there's the Spider-Man 2.1. Uh, oh, yeah. It's longer version. Ultimate edition. <laughs> More or less. It has 11 what are called extended sequences and then one alternate take. The alternate take is just a different elevator scene with Hal Sparks that isn't funny. It didn't do it for me. So it's fine. I like the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are two full-on deleted scenes that are very notable. Um, the first one that you're going to run to YouTube immediately to try and see features Robbie Robertson, Miss Brandt, and Hoffman, that's Ted Raimi's character, all staring into J. Jonah Jameson's office as J. Jonah Jameson is wearing the Spider-Man costume jumping around like a lunatic oh i have seen a gif of this okay um, i thought yeah. it was like clever photoshoppery i did not realize nope. that was a deleted scene that's dope nope he's just not wearing the mask and right. that's great so i listened to the commentary just for these scenes mostly so i could find out like why were these cut the commentary on 2.1 is actually with producer Laura Ziskin and screenwriter Alvin Sargent. So no Sam Raimi. And both of them admit that they should have just kept it in. The only reason they cut it was the joke was meant to be, isn't it funny this old out of shape guy is stuffed into the Spider-Man costume, but J.K. Simmons is in too good of a shape. So that mm-hmm. joke didn't land. Even though it's just funny on its own, that was their reason for cutting it, was the joke was, out of shape dude, tight costume. Yeah, he looks way too cool jumping around in that thing. Yeah, it betrays how fit he is. A few years ago when he signed a contract with Warner Brothers to appear in DC movies, stuff started going around online showing how ripped he is, and people were starting to speculate who he's going to play, who's he getting in shape for. It's like, no, bro, he has always been just ripped. He could destroy every single person listening to this right now. Yes. The other scene is Mary Jane in a shoe shop with her friend, uh, who they show her with a few times, uh, played by Vanessa... For Lito, for Lito, apologies. But the scene boils down to Mary Jane admitting that she is only marrying John mm-hmm. because Mary Jane's dad always told her she wouldn't amount to anything and no one would ever love her. Wow. So. Isn't that like a mother's duty to tell you? Ah. <laughs> uh, it's this weird scene. And I was really hoping the commentary would explain yeah we realize that doesn't make mj look good at all i mean it's all as we have discussed multiple times she's clearly marrying this guy for the wrong reasons and now you're just adding she is fully aware of the reasons that she's marrying him have nothing to do with love that's also kind of funny because in the first movie norman at the thanksgiving dinner says like similar very nasty things about mj to, to harry And we get the scene that I mentioned in that movie 
uh, in our review of Spider-Man 1 where Harry goes in for a kiss and she kind of pulls away, mm-hmm. which sort of adds to that. But at least she's not being mean. No, she's she's actually being very honest about it, which is great. Yeah. It's just like they were too young to like appreciate that about each other. Uh, and also yeah. it's a movie and not real life. But yeah, I mean, her friend has a talk with her about it and basically says, you should be marrying for love. And that's fine. It It's fine. Um, but yeah, that's the other deleted scene in Spider-Man 2.1. Hmm. Okay. With all of that out of the way, do you have any more final notes? Yeah, just to kind of build on stuff we've already mentioned a little, I want to say that Alfred Molina is very good at acting. I, for some reason, I always forget how good he is at acting, except when I see him in something. And then the part of my brain that's like, oh, shit, Alfred Molina is a great actor, uh, wakes up again for like a week. But yeah, the, the warp speed heel turn he took after becoming Doc Ock, it's like somewhat attributable to the AI of the robot arms. But it just mm-hmm. happens so quickly for it to have been pulled off by a lesser actor. Uh, and he and he just sells sells those scenes so well. And uh, shout out to the returning cast from the first film. We've talked about Rosemary Harris being so good. And uh, oh, yeah. I think we've like explicitly said J.K. Simmons is, as J.J. Jameson is probably <laughs> the greatest casting choice of all time. But Tobey Maguire just nails it again. Kirsten Dunst comes back strong. And they both really grew into their characters even though the script yeah. didn't do her too many favors, like she had to kind of do some off-screen acting development or character development, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, James Franco, I think I said already, he gets a little too stage acty, like a little melodramatic over the top with Harry. That's probably more the script's fault than his. Like he's not the greatest actor, and he's in more talented company. But he does, you know, he does enough. He does enough. He sells the conflict between them for the next film, um, which unfortunately was the final Raimi Spider-Man. I I think it was like a little weird that at the very end of the movie, uh, Doc Ock is like suddenly good again. Like it was a little too easy. Yeah. Like one heartfelt conversation and like boom, he's back to being the good doctor. Um, but but kind of like with the the MJ stuff and the Harry stuff, I think it's a little more the script's fault than the acting. And yeah, I think uh, one one thing that that really stood out to me on this watch, which like I've said is my first time seeing it in like sixteen years is that like the the struggles of working people to survive in an inherently uneven society is like a really big theme in this movie. Hmm. Like Peter not being able to pay any of his bills or his rent, not being able to put quarters into a phone for a phone call, Aunt May being refused a loan, and then being refused an advertised free toaster because she didn't (laughs) deposit enough money into her new account. Holy shit, dude. This is like a really working class movie in this sense. Like, one of the problems with our our particular brand of capitalism in the states is that like people who can afford little luxuries are given them for free simply due to their existing advantages and that just drives more inequality mm-hmm. like one of my favorite movies with Nail and I put this ha. dilemma really well a character says that that these things are uh free to those who can afford them and very expensive for those who can't and uh that just popped into my head when I was rewatching this movie. I, I appreciate it because Spider-Man being like a bummed out broke dude is a huge part of the character. And it, it's, it's done really well in this movie. I think. Yeah. That probably stems from, well, the nature of the comic book of, you know, Peter 
being the everyman and mm-hmm. Sam Raimi being from Detroit and growing up working class. Totally. Um, less deep, uh, Peter's landlord is named Mr. Ditkovic, which is obviously <laughs> a Slavic, Slavicized? I made up a word. Version of yep. Ditko, as in Steve Ditko. Yeah, and uh, that is more consideration than Steve Ditko got from Marvel for the cinematic success of his characters. Yeah. But everything I've read about him makes me think that he's okay with that in like a really weird perverted way because he's an extremely like rugged individualist kind of guy. Like I think Vulture or some some online publication that does talk about comic stuff a lot, like a writer found Steve Ditko in New York before he died and like yeah. went to, to talk to him about like, oh, like what are your thoughts on all of your characters being in these like massively successful movies and you not getting, you know, compensated for it. And Steve Ditko was basically like, well, you know, the contracts I signed did not allow me to gain any royalties from these characters. And that's just the way the cookie crumbles. It's like, oh, fuck. Okay. Well, you know, thanks for creating Spider-Man, dude, I guess. I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah. Super practical. So practical. Very, very down with uh, whatever happened to him. So Stanley gets his cameos and Ditko gets a shitty landlord named after him. (laughs) But is also the best comic relief of the movie. So, you know, it's a little victory. Oh, yeah. It's a victory. Yeah, it, it makes it really hard for me to take his, take the actor's character serious in any other thing I see him pop up in. Yeah. He plays like a Russian terrorist in Air Force One. And every time I see Air Force One, I'm like, ha ha, Peter's landlord. Yeah, he plays like an ex-Russian mafia boss in Arrow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, him and... uh uh. Dolph Lundgren are like Russian yeah. mafia guys in Arrow. Yep. God. Yeah. So uh, my my final note. I'm a little sorry to end on a downer here, but you know this is this has been a very hard year for so many of us, and every week seems bleaker than the last. It seems like there's no end in sight, really. You know, there's there's hope and there's potential for better outcomes than what we see now, and we got to hold on to those. Those are important. But I just want to say, like, in the spirit of how hard it is to face that sometimes, I wanted to bring up what Dr. Octavius said about intelligence. So he said, you know, intelligence, it's not a privilege, it's a gift, and you use it for the good of mankind. And that that resonated in that it made me think that, you know, just existing, you know, being being a human being in this world, like, that's that's not a privilege, that is a gift. We all have to use that gift when we can, you know, when we're able we have to use that gift for the good of mankind. Um, you know, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I, I don't believe in rugged individualism. I think inherently, and, and I'm saying this as, as a huge introvert, like inherently we are a communal species. We're at our best when we look out for each other. And in these, these trying times, we really need to look out for each other more than ever because institutions change, societies change, they get better, they get worse. But throughout it all, we will always, always need each other. And uh, my very final thought is that it's extremely fucking funny that the AI inhibitor chip on the supervillain robot arms <laughs> was like a little glass light bulb on Dr. Ock's neck. Like, put that shit in some plastic casing or something. <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude. Come on. Anyway, uh, what was your favorite thing about this movie? <laughs> uh, I will be shocked if it's not the same thing because it is the horror hospital scene. Hmm. Uh, like I said, it is so perfectly Sam Raimi that 
it makes me wish he would direct more. I looked over his IMDb as I was forming this thought and realized that it wasn't until 2013's Oz the Great and Powerful Hmm. that he stopped directing for a long stretch. Uh, Aside from a little bit of TV here and there, he's been mostly producing. And before that, he had been doing theatrical movies every two to three years, with the longest stretch being four years between Drag Me to Hell and Oz the Great and Powerful. Yeah, I mean, I can't expand on how great that scene is any more than we already did. It would just be me rambling. So, yeah. Um, I mean, really, all I have to add is, like, I, I totally agree. Like, that scene was a standout in, in an already very good movie with a lot of standout scenes. Like, that's just, like, one of the best horror scenes probably yeah. of, like, the last 30, 40, 50 years even. Mm-hmm. It's it's on YouTube. Like, just watch that scene again. If you haven't seen this movie in a while, It's it holds up, and it's just, like, an all-time creepy, scary, also just, like, a textbook example of how to make PG-13 scary. Yeah. I am sorry to disappoint you. That was not my favorite thing. Ooh. Although it is my favorite scene of the movie. Um, <laughs> my favorite thing is actually something I did not appreciate enough when I saw this movie in theaters because I was a dumb 14-year-old. And, like, I didn't even really remember from my first watching. Uh, but my favorite thing is, like, the half an hour of Peter Parker deciding to retire as Spider-Man uh, to sort his own life out. Huh. Like, it's it's just extremely relatable, uh, very thoughtful human moments it, it gives us a better insight into Peter Parker and who he is and what he cares about than more than any of the other Spider-Man movies and comics and the games I've consumed. To be fair, I, I haven't read many of the comics. I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff in there, but like him having to wear glasses again, trying to, to finish his homework, like all of this, it's so rare to see that much attention being paid to, to the personal lives of the superheroes uh, in the films that we see, like there's so many orphaned billionaires out there who have butlers doing the shit for them. <laughs> so it was just really refreshing and and kind of like wonderful to just see like a normal broke ass dude trying to live his life as best as he could. Huh. So just introspective of a normal dude. Yeah. But like, because he was Spider-Man for like a movie and a half before oh, he yeah, drops this, it's just like that much more interesting to see it play out the way it did. Yeah. It, it makes for a really interesting second act of a superhero action movie. Especially, like, the sequel to a massive blockbuster. Oh, yeah. The first blockbuster superhero movie since, like, the 80s. And it's uh, it, it's it was very risky, I think. Like, that's not what... I'm sure, like, if you asked a test audience or something, like, no one would want the second act <laughs> of the movie to be Spider-Man, like, avoiding being Spider-Man. Like, that was yeah. a huge, huge going out on a limb for for Raimi to do and it works so well and I think it's going to stick with me more than like maybe you know the horse the horror surgery scene uh this the subway New Yorkers solidarity scene like amazing standout scenes the two of the best scenes in the movie but as far as like my favorite thing it's just that second act uh of him being Peter Parker fair enough but you know, just as just as Peter tried to fix his life, so too was must we Snark Knights try to fix this movie. So what is your what is your selection for fixing this movie? So in a movie like this where we clearly love that everybody clearly loves or most people clearly love, anybody who doesn't love this, you're wrong. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. I genuinely think it would fix this movie 
if Doc Ock wasn't redeemed or killed at the end. Mm-hmm. I get why they did what they did. You know, we discussed the body horror element idea of being controlled by something else. But I just, I would have liked it better if it was purely he had gone crazy because he couldn't deal with the fact that his experiment failed, that that failure resulted in the death of his wife. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that just pushed him to be a villain forever. I mean, I'm not sure how they could have ended it entirely differently, but I just wasn't a fan of him having his I will not be a monster moment. It would have to end differently is about all that it would take. I just not a fan of the villain has to die at the end of every movie. You don't have to bring him back for the next movie. We will talk about that eventually in a different Spider-Man movie. Yeah, and we, we actually did also talk about it a little bit with uh, The Dark Knight. Oh yeah, we did. Episode 2, folks. <laughs> yeah, way back in episode 2 when we were still finding our footing. Apologies for the mess. I think we spent about 30 minutes saying, God, Heath Ledger was so good. At least 30 minutes. Um, but yeah, just don't kill Doc. Let him be a bad guy. What is your fix of this movie? I, I actually, I strongly agree with, with what you just said. It didn't really occur to me when I was thinking about my fix this movie, but, uh, and I'm not changing mm-hmm. my answer. I'm just saying like that. That's <laughs> I, I appreciate I it. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, you're not always wrong. What can I say? Fix this movie. Uh, how about some mid and end credits? Am I right? <laughs> Like, how can I be excited for the next movie if you don't give me a little teaser? Um, anyway, my actual fix this movie. Um, yeah. I, I guess I sort of gave this away already, but a few things happen throughout Spider-Man 2 that make it feel more like a bridge film between Spider-Man 1 and 3 uh, to mm-hmm. set up the Peter Harry conflict, for example. But the issue I have with it is that it's like, like a, such a decision led to this not feeling like its own standalone film, which is totally fine. Like it, it works mm-hmm. mostly as a standalone and it works really well as part of this trilogy, but making it, making it more of a setup for the third movie means that you're on one hand, you're wasting Alfred Molina a little bit mm-hmm. and the full force of this film is lost because it just rushes through some character development from, from uh, Harry and MJ and then it rushes through the Doc Ock story, which just gets subsumed into the larger Harry Osborn becoming a villain arc. So I don't know if it would be just like editing some scenes in different order or maybe um, adding a couple of scenes to show what's going on with MJ. What, how did Peter and Doc Ock become so close? And, and things like that might have made this feel like more of a standalone all-time great superhero movie instead of just a great Spider-Man movie among a batch of okay to great movies that absolutely makes sense to me yeah it's give me the ultimate edition that's all i'm asking yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's a it's a problem that you get with trilogies or movies that you know are going to have a sequel it's sure necessary evil for lack of a better term uh Uh, maybe maybe i think empire strikes back really set this in stone for trilogy blockbuster trilogies yeah Um, it's so fucking good but like halfway through the third act, you realize like this is not its own movie at all. Yeah. With that, let us move on to just giving some final thoughts to the series as a whole. As we mentioned, this is 
like just this groundbreaking series that helped change the course of comic book movies and action movies and Hollywood in general. Right, it was like the second wave of blockbuster superhero films after the uh, the Superman, uh, the the Donner Superman films were sort of like the mm-hmm. the Godfathers, which is also why our first episode is uh, the first Superman movie. Um, but then due to FX issues and budget issues and like seeming lack of interest, uh, the nineties is just like kind of a graveyard for superhero movies. Yeah. Like a couple, couple of good things popped up, but then, you know, in the two thousands, it really turned around, you know, you get X-Men blade, uh, kind of build into this amazing Spider-Man film that Sam Raimi came out with in, uh, 2002, then Spider-Man and Spider-Man two, along with you know x-men and blade they sort of were like the silver age in that they lasted a pretty short amount of time and were a springboard for the next wave which was huge uh yeah of course is the nolan batman and mcu yes absolutely so what i have taken away from this in analyzing all three of these together not necessarily at the same time these are the most comic booky movies ever. They are absolutely inspired by Silver Age Spider-Man comics that Sam Raimi grew up reading. Um, you get some wild scene transitions. Like in Spider-Man 2, there's a point where the Spider-Man symbol is used as a transition. You don't do that in most movies. You have voiceovers opening and closing them. Um, you have corny humor, you have this wild scientific stuff, and they're also all about Peter Parker's journey. If you look at this trilogy as a whole, split up into three separate comic book issues, they each tell a different chapter of Peter Parker learning and accepting that with great power comes great responsibility. Um... In the first movie, by the end of it, he thinks he has it figured out. In the second movie, he rejects it, but then comes back around to realizing that it requires sacrifice. You just have to. And then in the third one, he learns humility and finds this balance. And that's a good capper to that journey. Um, It's also about Peter and Mary Jane. The first movie, the opening line is... This is the story about a girl. And this story is all three movies. Now, there are, especially the first movie and then points to the second movie that sort of rely heavily on the idea that these two are supposed to be together. Like, we're just going to take shortcuts because that's what it's going to be. But if you look at their relationship in the third movie, if you just watch the third movie for their relationship, it's a very adult relationship. MJ has agency. Peter's kind of ignoring her because he's too caught up in his own world. And they deal, they're they dealing with it in very adult ways. I mean, Harry comes along and starts futzing with things. But in general, the two of them are dealing with it. And the third movie, it doesn't end with everything being happy between them. It ends with them holding each other, crying, not saying anything. And it's not a happy cry so much as the look on their face, the energy that they're putting off is, oh my God, we almost lost each other. 
we need to work on this together. At least that's the feeling that I got. And because Peter and MJ are the actual focus of the movie, it forgives a lot of the lack of development of some of the villains or how, you know, Dr. Octopus and Sandman just vanish in the middle of the movies. The movies aren't about them. Totally. It's about Peter and MJ. And a problem with a lot of comic book sequels, especially the Batman movies, is they become in danger of becoming too focused on the new villain. And the main character just basically is there to fight them and nothing else about them. But laying it out like a comic book story, it is one three-issue arc. And... Also, Sam Raimi clearly grew up reading Silver Age comics because, like I said, these movies get goofy. And if you go back and read Silver Age comics, a lot of stuff doesn't make sense. It happens for the sake of happening. So things like Green Goblin have, having miniature nukes or Doc Ock's arms being evil, it makes sense if you think of them as Silver Age comics. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's my general consensus on this trilogy as a whole it's a silver age comic book series Mm -hmm. yeah i i agree with your your laying out of the centering of of peter and mj too like that's that's a huge thing that like you don't really appreciate until you think about these movies um yeah like as analytically as we're trying to do now um yeah like it's basically like a nerd who's in love and then gets like superpowers and it (laughs) and the order of that sentence is also the order of the priorities like it's it's about a nerd who's in love and like the superhero shits there and it's like a huge part of it but at the end of the day like he loves his aunt he loves mj and he's just trying to like figure himself out because he's like supposed to be you know 18 19 years old Mm -hmm. yeah no i I really i don't have much to add to what you said I, i i agree with that and i will say i think you kind of skipped the most important thing though in summarizing this trilogy and that is let let's rank the bruce campbell cameos (laughs) okay so i'll go first uh my ranking is spider-man 3 bruce campbell as the maitre d who peter enlists to help him propose to mj is because he's so over the top yeah it's the second best one okay the best one is a tie between sleazy wrestling announcer in the first movie because that's a great use of Bruce Campbell's <laughs> unique screen presence and then theater usher in this movie because it's a great demonstration of what a good comic actor Bruce Campbell is. Yeah. I I would have to say I would put them in the actual order that they appear. Not that any of them is okay. bad, okay. obviously. But yeah, I mean, him as the ring announcer in Spider-Man 1 is so so good and so boisterous it is peak bruce campbell totally like i didn't Um, even recognize him the first time i saw that movie i mean you know i was like 12 so literally all i knew about him was like he this is the dude from uh jack of all trades and the adventures of briscoe (laughs) county jr so too too young for army of darkness i will actually i had seen army of darkness but okay i didn't even connect that that was the guy from my two favorite saturday tv shows that were not animated, be clear. I, I was a kid, so I liked all the animated yeah. shit more. But but like you said, the first one is just like peak Bruce Campbell. Yeah, and it just in order. It's by thin degrees. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, if I had to not tie 
one and two for first place. I'd agree. One, two, and three should be the order. But I think him as the usher was just, it was so good. A normal human being would have just told Peter, hey, I'm sorry, like, the play's going on, I can't let you in. Whether or not he says anything about wait till intermission, it just would have been, like, a really quick (laughs) scene, you know? Yeah. And then Bruce Campbell, like, lets Peter go deeper and dig himself into a deeper and deeper hole with every request. so good. It's so so good. Yeah. It's like watching a really skilled prosecutor cross-examine somebody. It was, it was beautiful. And uh, <laughs> we will forever and always on this podcast stand Bruce Campbell. Absolutely. He is our dad. <laughs> hey, I'd be so happy with that. Um, and then on a personal note that you can edit out, as I may have mentioned, I've a lot of the extra sound clips and like ringers and notifications on my phone are theme songs from stuff and... I have an alarm for the adventures of Briscoe County Jr. and an alarm for the Jack of all trades. Nice. Uh, they're classics, you know? Yeah. I Don't think they deserve Jack. revisiting. Uh, I will say Briscoe County aged a lot better than Jack of all trades. Absolutely. Um, and that's because it was a Fox show. And every time I watch it, I, I yell, who's bad? Show enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Okay, so... That pretty much wraps up everything. Jahan, do you remember how to take us home? I would just like to say we love and appreciate our logo designer, Catherine, over at Lone Shoe Graphics. If you ever need any graphic design work done, look up Catherine. And on uh, a more personal note for looking people up, if you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, comments, uh, suggestions, if you're if you're glad we're back, uh, if you're mad at us for taking so long, Whatever it is, give us an email at snarknightspod at gmail.com. Or if you can fit it into less than 300 uh, characters, let us know on Twitter at snarknightspod. Yeah. During this break, I turned someone on to picking up the Marvel series Annihilation, which was a cosmic miniseries that changed the shape of the cosmic universe in Marvel. And I will talk about that more once we get to Guardians of the Galaxy. All right. Well, we might actually get to Guardians of the Galaxy because... We might. We return to my favorite feature of our podcast. Luke is now shaking a hat full of pieces of paper. And on those pieces of paper are the names of... I was going to say hundreds, probably dozens of comic book movies. Dozens of comic book movies. And whatever he draws out of the hat will be our next episode. Uh, the hat is mad at us for being gone for so long. Oh, no. Join us next time for 2013's <gasps> Kick-Ass 2. Oh, okay. I kind of liked it. <laughs> I am really looking forward to talking about this and figuring all that out. Not looking forward to watching it again. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, I, I actually had all the Kick-Ass comics, and I I don't remember if I loaned them to somebody or if I gave them to somebody, but it's probably for the <laughs> best, because I remember reading Kick-Ass 2 and being like, Mark Millar's a fucked up individual. <laughs> Mark Millar, yeah. I read Watchmen too. Ugh, yeah. That's it for Spider-Man. Join us next time for Kick-Ass 2. And since this episode took so long for us to put out, and even though it's a really long and packed episode. We're going to be putting out a little bonus episode for you, 
our beloved fans. So keep an eye out for that before the end of this month. And until then, I apologize for nothing. Harry introduces Peter to daughter... Uh, daughter. Harry introduces Peter to daughter... Daughter Octopus. <laughs> That'd be a good folk band oh. name. Just throwing that out there. Daughter Octopus? Yeah.